This message that we're doing uh, tonight is, gave it the title, it's part of our deep question series, Do Non-King James Version Bibles Delete Inspired Words? There's different ways I could say this. This is in many ways a continuation of the uh, series that we did two weeks ago, uh, which talked about do we have the right words in our Bible We had a message about do we have the right books in the Bible, the canon, and then we were talking about the transmission of the text. And this message came about specifically, well, I've been wanting to teach on it for a while, uh, but I had a question from somebody in the congregation asking about this. And I know there's others that from time to time have wondered, or maybe you've been challenged by people online as far as, you know, do other translations that are not the King James, are they... Uh, are they real translations? Are they, they butchering God's word? At the outset here, I want to state that the King James Bible, the purpose of this tonight is not to uh, denigrate the, the King James. Uh, the King James is a beautiful and widely beloved uh, translation of Scripture that uh, generations of Christians have benefited from it greatly. And I am not up here to tell you that you cannot use it. I'm not here to say that there's another version of the Bible that's the perfect Bible. That's not my point. Uh, I'm not even here to debate about whether the language is outdated or if we should still be able to use it. That's not the main point here tonight. But the issue that I want to address is the view that is uh, promoted by some And maybe you've had people you've encountered. Maybe there's things that you've seen uh, online or Facebook or different things that people have shared. That there's a view that says that the King James Version alone is the Word of God alone. And that if you have some different translation, it is not really the Word of God. So I would say I have a King James Version that's right here. I have the ESV and there's some that... Some people would say, well, they're, they're two good translations of the Word of God. But there are some that would say, no, this is the Word of God and this is some corrupted Word of man. And we're going to see also some of the, the reason they would do, some of the things that maybe you have encountered online. Because I want us to be able to understand uh, what really is going on. And I think this is also a helpful thing for us to just think about Uh, just how Bible transmission has taken place, how God has uh, given his text to us so that we receive it today and that whole process and how it works. And it is really an interesting thing. But a while back, I collected some of these memes that people post online. And these are some memes by, uh, I think, some people that were very much... uh, King James only folk. And these are typical maybe of some things that you might see. So this is one. Uh, it said, modern versions of the Bible are the devil's scissors cutting to pieces the word of God. And so there's people up there on ladders and they're, they're cutting out word of God. They're cutting out different parts. Now one thing we'll look at is that you're going to hear claims that there are, there are verses that are missing. There are words that are, that are missing from other translations of Scripture. And we're going to see that, in a sense, there is truth to that. There's even verses that you try to look up and you can't find in, um, let's say, a, a New American Standard or an ESV. Uh, but is that really what's going on? Is it this uh, plot of the devil to, uh, to, to take out the Word of God for 
certain reasons. Here's another one. Talk about satanic doctrines infiltrating the church. And it lists all the different versions of the Bible except for the King James and claiming it says that Jesus is not God, claiming that it, these other versions teach that hell is not a real place. And it says God is only one book, the authorized King James Bible. You have that. This next one, I think this might be my favorite one. Uh, the only Bible Satan rejects is the authorized King James Version. I love this because it has you know, Satan as the stereotypical guy in the red suit, and uh, he's just like, he's repulsed because it's a King James Bible. But this is the only one that he feels this way. You know, it's like, you know, garlic for a vampire or something like that. And uh, <laughs> I get a kick out of that one. Let me give you two more. And these, the reason I'm giving you these is to show that this is a view that some people have. Again, I, I want to make it clear, there's a spectrum. I'll probably say this more than once. That there are those that love the King James, prefer the King James, uh, but they don't view it as, like, it's the only Bible that you could have. Uh, there's some that would say, we'll learn more about this, that the different texts behind the King James, some would say that they prefer that, that they think that those texts are more reliable, and we can debate whether that's right or wrong. But you also have an extreme here that views anything besides the King James as just, well, some would literally say it's a, a satanic version of the Bible, that it's corrupted, that it's designed uh, with some kind of, some say, New Age plots to lead Christians astray. Let me give you two other memes. It says, don't go Greek. If your pastor is correcting the KJV Bible with the Greek, it is time for you to go find a Bible-believing church. We have God's pure word perfectly preserved in the King James Bible. You realize what the logic would be if, if this is what you believe? Is that the Word of God is not even just the original manuscripts, the original Hebrew and Greek, and there's a little bit of Aramaic in the Old Testament, that it's actually the King James translated in 1611 that this is the Word of God. And in this view, the King James is so perfect that if your pastor is saying, well, actually the Greek says here and, and is correcting the King James Bible, in this view, the King James Bible is the inspired, infallible translation. And you can't even correct it by referring back to what, say, Paul wrote originally in, in the Greek. And it's a view that some on the extreme side of this have. And if you thought you were safe because you have a new King James uh, the people that are extreme on this would say, no, you are not. You are the same as all those other people with your New Age Bible versions. So this is, this is not the King James Bible, counterfeit. This is not based 100% on the Textus Receptus. So what is the Textus Receptus? We'll talk about that. Uh, but just to let you know that for some folk, even having a new King James, that is not good enough. And you've bought into... Uh, this, this whole satanic conspiracy. So, we think about this <coughs> a little bit more. And I want to give you some examples. Um, some of the things that you may encounter in one way or another, and depending you know, what books you're looking at, uh, what things are online, uh, it might be presented in a way that is uh, more uh, sophisticated or sometimes less sophisticated. Uh, but it, there is truth that there are 
words that are in the King James Bible that are not found in other uh, scriptures. So one example I'll give is 1 John 4, 3. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of, the, of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is in the world. Now you compare that with the English Standard Version, and it says that every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And then it goes on from there. But you notice it doesn't have the phrase that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. And there are some King James-only advocates. Uh, it's actually a common thing in some of these circles to say this was taken out to promote a heretical view of Jesus. That in the King James, it's very specific that Jesus Christ, he has come in the flesh. Whereas, you look at here, you can see that the English Standard Version just leaves that out. And isn't that a problem? Isn't that promoting heresy? We're going to come back to this later on. Uh, so you can see, uh, I'm going to argue that that's not the case. That's not what's going on. But if you look at this, just in those, just verse 3 on its own, comparing those two translations, I could see why that might worry us. There are places where there are verses that are missing. If I had you get a, a um, ESV Bible or a New American Standard and ask you to find Mark uh, 9, verse 44, 46, you would have a hard time finding that. So... Uh, doing sword drills with people, it's a way to mess with them. Have them look for Mark 9, 44. Because look, in the English Standard Version, it talks about if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled with, than with two hands and going to hell uh, to the unquenchable fire. And then all of a sudden, hey, it's verse 45. Where is 44? And there's also, there's not a verse 46. So what happened there? I mean, that seems concerning that there's entire verses that seem to, that they're missing. They're not found there. And when we think about what is in there, if you look that up in King James, in those verses, in 44 and 46, it says, where, there, where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Talking about hell being a place of eternal torment, that you're there forever, that you, you're, you're not just uh, punished for a little while and snuffed out of existence, that you're going to, those that die without a savior have eternal punishment in hell. And so that's where some will say, well, it, the King James presents that, but these other versions are taking this out and they're denying eternal hell. They're denying this, this warning. We'll come back to this one as well as we look to it, as, as we get into this. But I think as we get into this, we want to talk a little bit about how the Bible was transmitted to us. And I know... We did a message on this two weeks ago. Uh, many of you were here, uh, maybe not everyone. I want to do a little review of that. I also want to encourage you, uh, you could go online and find that message, and I hope it would be helpful. And these two messages together hopefully will uh, be very helpful to you. It's just a lot of information. We couldn't do it all at once. Uh, but when we think about how the Bible was, print, was transmitted to us, we remember that it was not done in an age where you could cut and paste, you couldn't text, you didn't have printers or copy machines, you didn't even have the printing press. And so for most of the time since the New Testament was completed, 
uh, the only way that a copy could be made, it was done by hand. And so scribes would have to copy uh, the, the scriptures out. And it is a big book. It, it's a long, time-consuming thing to do. And it'd be hard enough if you had a room with good you know, lighting and ventilation and you had you know, modern pens that don't run out of ink. But if you're doing this in the olden days and you're writing on you know, parchment or animal skin or something like that and you're using a quill and ink, and it, would, it definitely takes a long time to do this. And not many people uh, were trained in writing. Uh, so it was a very expensive and also uh, time-consuming process. Now, one of the things we looked at is that we are very fortunate that there are so many copies of Scripture that we have ancient manuscripts, way more than any other ancient document. And the ones that we have are closer to the original than uh, any other ancient document as well. But we don't have the actual originals. We don't have the actual... uh, Letters that, let's say, the Apostle Paul wrote his his letter to the book of his letter to the Romans. Uh, he wrote that it was sent to the Romans, and then what happened is they started making copies for other churches, and so you have th- that original. And who knows how many copies were made and sent to different churches or Christians that came over and, and they made a copy, and then copies would be made of those copies. Now the scribes were there. They honored this as the word of God, and they tried to be as careful as they could, but there are going to be mistakes that are made. And so mistakes are made from time to time. We would consider them typos. Uh, They're not really typing, so that's not really an accurate way to say it. Uh, But uh, a a typo is uh, something that would happen. There were a lot of these that were accumulated, and some have said, well, there's more typos than there are uh, words in Scripture. But the reason for that is because we have so many copies of Scripture uh, that we have. It's just a, a huge number of them. So I just want to remind us, kind of one thing we left off of last time, that there's really three different ways that God, if he wanted to get his word to us in a, in a printed form, and we can be very glad that it's printed because then we can compare it, we can look at it together. It's not just a warm feeling in your heart. Uh, but one thing that God could have done is he could have just somehow made it so that typos couldn't happen, that errors are variants. So if you tried to write something different than what the Bible says you're copying it, your hand just wouldn't be able to do it. And I guess God could have done that. That seems like it would be a, a strange thing to do, and God didn't do it that way. Another thing that he could have done, and some people would have liked this, is to say, well, he's gonna, we're going to keep the originals. You know, so that uh, we, we have the original, you know, 2,000 or more year old documents, you know, somewhere. Now, that's a long time and really an unrealistic time for most writing materials to last, especially from that time period. Uh, but one of the things that we have to realize why this is actually not the best thing is that it would give some person or some group exclusive control over the scriptures and where you'd have to come to them to find out what it really says. And maybe if they want to change it, they'd be able to. So instead, God, in his providence and his wisdom, did it a different way, that he preserved the original words through many copies. And so many copies are written, they're sent out, but there's going to be little errors, there's going to be typos, maybe uh, changes, unintentional changes oftentimes. Uh, But because of this, uh, they're spread out 
It's not like a telephone game where one person tells another person tells another, but it's like a, a tree branching on all kinds of directions. But this also means that one group or person never had control over the scriptures where they could just decide to just change it and make it say what they wanted to. Uh, there, that was never a possibility. And so this, it makes it more messy because there's the little you know, changes and they call them variants. They have to figure out what's the original one. But because there's so many, they can compare them to each other and almost all the time figure out with a high degree of certainty what the original was. Because when we talk about uh, these different variations and different things that they have, um, we remember that most of these variants are not meaningful. They don't change the meaning of the text. It might just be like a spelling uh, alternate spelling or uh, you know, some small thing that you can't even see in translation. There's no meaningful change at all. And some of them are what they say not viable. It means they don't have a good chance that the one change is the authentic one. I mean, there's some things that they can tell that, okay, this is a nonsense word or a line just got repeated. And they can tell very easily which is the real one. And we talked about this last time, but I found a chart by uh, Dan Wallace. He's a very uh, excellent uh, New Testament scholar through uh, Dallas Theological Seminary. And in one of his presentations, he gave this chart. And he was basically saying, if you have, uh, you think about all these documents, these ancient ones, and if there's these little tiny, you know, typos or or whatever in them, uh, realize that, okay, some are meaningful, some aren't, some are viable, some aren't. But he put it in a chart like this. You see the top, it says, okay, these are the ones that are meaningful. There's actually something that it kind of changes things at least a little bit. It's not just like a name spelt slightly differently or a word order that doesn't change anything. But at the bottom, it's those that are not meaningful. And most of them are not meaningful. There's also those that are not viable, that means that, okay, we know that this one is the mistake. It's, there's no way that could possibly be the actual original that, you know, Peter actually wrote that. Uh, but there might be some that, okay, maybe Peter wrote this. But if you p- put it on a chart like this, and he says this is not even to scale, that really it should be even smaller than this, the only amount that is actually meaningful and viable, meaning it has a chance of being one or the other, is in his view, and he's an expert in this field, is less than one-tenth of one percent of all these textual variants. So the text that we have that we came down, yeah, there might be a lot of typos, but most of them don't matter at all. But there are still some that they have to work through, and they have to uh, figure out which is the original. And we're going to see that's part of the problem with the different translations, that sometimes it's not just a matter of two translations looking at the same Greek word, let's say, and trying to decide, you know, what word do we use to translate this? But sometimes they have to say, okay, which word actually is it in Greek? Is it from this manuscript or is it from these manuscripts over here? And there are a few times uh, where they have to make those decisions and there's not complete agreement on that. So any of these uh, typos, it's been said that I think this is really helpful that um, we, Scripture has not been lost. If anything, it's like we have in all the manuscripts that are out there, it's like having a, 
uh, a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle with a thousand and five pieces. That somehow a few extra pieces kind of got mixed in there, but we're not actually missing pieces. That's something that's called the tenacity of the text. That the scribes, when they copied it, they were way more likely to keep uh, a reading in there when they copied it than to delete something. Because they looked at what they had in front of them and said, this is God's word. And sometimes they would say, I don't know if this is right, but you know what? I'm just going to copy it as it is. But once in a while, we see there might be times where um, maybe through a slip of the memory or something, something, a little tiny thing got added in one way or another. We'll look at some examples of that, and hopefully that'll um, give you an idea of the type of thing we're, we're talking about. Um, but again, none of these change any major doctrine, and it's been estimated that it might be about maybe every three pages or so in the New Testament there is a meaningful uh, you know, variant that you have to kind of be, have some kind of question about. Um, but one quote I have in your notes is uh, from James White. He wrote a very good book on the King James-only controversy. He said, The amount of variation between the two more or most extremely different New Testament manuscripts would not fundamentally alter the message of the Scriptures. So even though there are people like Bart Ehrman and others that say, well, you, we just can't have any idea what the Bible even says, even if we have uh, different versions that are the, the most different that we could have, it really doesn't change anything about Christian teaching and it doesn't affect the message. All right, so reminding yourself of that, one thing we talked about, we have to remind ourselves when people say that the Bible was transmitted like oh, it's a copy of a copy of a copy and it's like the telephone game and you can't trust what you have at the end because it's been changed so many times along the way. Uh, we've said that it's not like the telephone game for a variety of different reasons. For one, uh, we have multiple lines of transmission and you're not just stuck with whatever the person at the end says. And also the people in the middle, they, they want to transmit it accurately. They're not like uh, you know, some kid that is goofing up the telephone game on purpose. But because of, we have all these different lines of transmission, you can compare and, and uh, take a look at them to see what the original actually was. And we can go even go back to uh, everyone along the way because we have so many of these different copies. Not only do we have that, but we have... Uh, people that published sermons way back in the day and biblical books. And we can see, well, when they reference scripture, what did they say that it said? And it's a helpful way to, to look at this. Uh, so we said it's, it's kind of more like a tree that kind of branches off. And so there's kind of major branches uh, of these different text types. So if you have some different, let's say a typo slips in and it gets copied and it gets copied over and over, that might get duplicated in kind of one branch of the tree, but not another branch. Now, I do have to say it's not quite as clean and simple as that. It's kind of a tangled tree. And sometimes when they uh, made their copies, maybe they were using part of a manuscript over here for one book and uh, then a, a different manuscript for a different part of it. Or maybe they compared to make some corrections. But basically you have, let's say, four kind of big branches that these people that study this talk about. 
And so one is called the Alexandrian text type. And Alexandria was in Egypt. And we don't think of Egypt right now as being a big headquarters for, for Christianity, but in the early church it was. I mean, so many of the most important theologians in uh, the early church really came out of northern Africa. And so there was a lot of Christianity going there. Uh, this was before, you know, the, the Muslims. Uh, it was a big center for Christianity. So one of these text types of these families is called the Alexandrian text type. Uh, another, it's labeled the Western so it's in the West and uh, more towards like Rome, kind of that area. These, this is not exact on these maps. And then the Byzantine, which this comes from later on when you had the Byzantine Empire. So Constantine moves the capital of the, the Roman Empire to Constantinople. Well, he creates that city, names it after himself, and that becomes the capital there of what becomes the Byzantine Empire uh, for you know, the next thousand years. And so in that area, they spoke Greek, and they spoke Greek for, for well, in some places, obviously, they still do. And so that's why it's called the Byzantine type, because it's from the, the Byzantine um, you know, Empire. And there's another one. This one's debated, the Caesarean and some include it, some don't, and I'm not going to really get into that. Uh, but some of the things that we can see comp- talking about these different text types, and this is all going to help inform us when we think about, okay, King James, Bible, or other translations. Uh, the major text types that you have, the Alexandrian, which a lot of it was kind of in Egypt, um, these are the oldest most of the really old copies that we have are in this type of text family. It means they have the same, none of them are like exactly the same as one another, but they have things in common with each other, maybe the same type of different variations. And so this Alexandrian ones, uh, the papyri, so those were the oldest manuscripts that we have were made on this uh, paper, kind of like thing made from papyrus, and some of them are just little little scraps. But they're the ones that go way, way back. Some of them, said so the John Ryland's papyri, maybe to just a, a few years after John wrote the Gospel of John. Uh, and the early Unical uh, codexes, uh, or unsealed codexes. A codex basically is a book. It was the early form of the book, and really Christians kind of developed that so they could have all the scripture in one place. And uncial means it was a type of writing where it was all capital letters in Greek. And they didn't have spaces between the letters either. And so that type of writing, you could identify how old it is by the way they wrote it, what they wrote it on. And so some of these oldest ones, including uh, two of the oldest, most important manuscripts, we have Codex Sinaiticus, uh, which is found in the Sinai Peninsula from like the mid-300s and Codex uh, Vaticanus, which is kept in the Vatican now from the early 300s, they're of this kind of, this family. This typically has what's considered more concise readings. If you compare it to the, let's say, the Byzantine, they tend to be more, they tend to be shorter, whereas the Byzantine kind of adds in some stuff at times. It kind of expands a little bit, and we'll explain that in a little bit. So the Western type, this is, you know, Rome, places where they spoke Latin. 
And some of these are in Greek, but also translations that were made into Latin. Of course, in Rome, they speak Latin, so uh, they weren't as inclined to, for the longest time, to have a bunch of Greek manuscripts because they didn't know Greek, a lot of them, most of them, uh, even a lot of the scholars. And so they started working out of Latin versions instead. A guy, Jerome, translated around the year 400, the, the Vulgate, and so it's uh, the version of the uh, Bible that was used throughout the Middle Ages that was uh, in, in Latin. But then the Byzantine and the Alexandrian and the Byzantine are going to be two of the most important that we're going to talk about for our purposes here. Uh, this is the majority of you know, the manuscripts that we have. Like I said, we have nearly like 5,800 practically of these ancient manuscripts. And by far... Uh, most of them are of this type, the Byzantine type. It's stated about maybe 75% of all the manuscripts and the vast majority after the 9th century. So, I mean, that's kind of later on, okay? Uh, 9th century, that's, you know, hundreds of years after the time of Christ. And this is uh, different types of writing. Uh, Minuscule, that's when they started writing with, like, lowercase as well, and kind of this cursive type font. So there's way more of these, way more, but they're later on, most of them, uh, not exactly always. These tend to have fuller readings. So you might have a verse in, let's say, um, somewhere that in in the King James, it might say, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in maybe the Alexandrian, it says, the Lord Jesus. And you say, okay, well, one is adding a little bit more or taking away, depending, it all depends on what was actually originally written. Are, we, are you taking away part of the title of Christ or are you adding onto it? And it seems like what probably happened a lot of times is that over the years, there was something that was called expansion of piety. You know, that these scribes that were copying this were very devout Christians and sometimes, even when we talk, we recognize this. That in just say, instead of saying, you know, he, it's, it seems more respectful to say Jesus. And it seems even more respectful to say Jesus Christ. And it seems even more respectful to say Lord Jesus Christ. And that maybe over time, uh, there would be a scribe that uh, would maybe accidentally, you know, just kind of expand the title beyond what was originally written. It's either that or somebody is, for whatever reason, uh, deciding to, we're, we're going to take part of that off. Now, it all depends what you think the motivations are. I mean, for those that say, well, it's a bunch of New Age conspiracies, well, it's people trying to denigrate, you know, Christ and to, to make him less, you know, he's not the Messiah, so we're going to take out the word Christ. Or does it make more sense, you know, that these, you know, these uh, very devoted monks that were copying it uh, maybe accidentally added something to it, and that stuck and stayed in over the years. But I thought this was an interesting statistic. Uh, the, the whole phrase, Lord Jesus Christ, is used in the King James Version 86 times. And there are people who claim that, you know, the other versions, they, they remove that or they, they shrink it down. Uh, but in other translations, let's say the New American Standard Bible, that whole phrase, Lord Jesus Christ, is still used 64 times. 
Now, okay, it's a few less, but I would say if there was actually a conspiracy to say that Jesus is not the Lord and not Christ, they're not doing very well with that conspiracy if you still leave it in there 64 times. And I went and counted for the English Standard Version that has that full phrase still in there 63 times. So to me, I do not see some conspiracy to make Jesus not Christ or to make him not Lord in these other translations. So it's really kind of between the Alexandrian and the Byzantine where a lot of this conflict is going to come in. Because what we're going to see is that the King James translators relied on uh, texts that pretty much utilized completely uh, the Byzantine family. And so that's what they used for their translations. And then later on, there were other uh, manuscripts that were collected, that were discovered. And a lot of these ended up being earlier, uh, but they ended up being from the different kind of families. And so they had some slightly different readings. Now you might say, well, we should just count them and whichever one has the most, that's what we should go with. And that's where someone would say, well, you've got to go with whatever the majority is. And say the majority text. And there's a sense where I could, that kind of makes sense. But you also have to ask other questions, too. You know, if, some, if one is a thousand years later that it was copied than a different one, um, you know, that's something you've got you to gotta weigh. That which has a better chance of being closer to the original. That doesn't always mean that the earlier one is right. It's not the case. But all things being equal, probably the one that's closer in time to the original probably has more going for it. You also have to ask questions as well, like what are the possible reasons, you know, why the change happened? Can, can you explain it? And sometimes it's pretty obvious. Sometimes they can look and, and see that, okay, in the Greek there were two, like, uh, phrases that, that looked almost the same. And it would be really easy for a scribe to, you know, copy out part and look down and write it and then look back and accidentally look at the wrong uh, line because part of the word is the same. And so he either misses or he copies the same thing twice. So sometimes you can figure out what is the reason probably that, you know, this uh, difference happened. Where did it come from? Well, and also think of the reason why is it the case that we have so many more of the, the Byzantine manuscripts than the other ones. And I mentioned this a little bit. Now, the, the fourth one here, um, let's just talk about the, the first three, because those are the three major ones. Some don't even list the last one. The Western one, as we said, that was in Rome. And so even some of the, uh, the best theologians of the early church, uh, they spoke Latin, and they didn't even speak Greek or no Greek at all. And so when a Latin version was available for them to use, that's what they used. And so there was less reason for them to be making copies of the Greek New Testament because people there didn't speak Greek. Now, you think, well, what about, you know, um, Alexandria down in Egypt? I mean, it's even named after Alexander the Great, you know, conquered and, you know, brought the Greek language throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, But... Well, between about 632 and 732, you had this um, big shakeup uh, called the, uh, the Muslim conquest. And so as Muhammad creates the uh, Islamic religion and they start moving and conquering different lands, 
you know, they sweep through Egypt. They sweep through North Africa. And most of that just gets taken over by, by the Muslims. And so after that time, you don't have scriptures being copied like that in Egypt because now it's all Muslim territory. But if you have Constantinople, this is, you know, uh, near Greece and you have that area and uh, that's the language that they actually speak. And they kept translating in Greek then for like another thousand years, kind of all the way, well, they kept doing it, you know, so you have things all the way up to the time of the printing press. So it makes sense why there would be so many of that Byzantine text type because that's where people kept speaking and using Greek. But most of them are far later than some of the other ones. All right. So you have these different text types, and they're all written out in hand, by hand. And they had to do that for the longest time. But then eventually the printing press gets invented. So Gutenberg creates the printing press. And then after a while, people decide, well, let's start printing Bibles. And then eventually they're like, hey, well, let's print copies of the, the Greek um, and, then, and then Hebrew. It took a little while to do this because actually they, didn't have the, they had to create the Greek and Hebrew type for this, uh, you know, for the printing press. But eventually they wanted to do this. But then you have a choice to make. And you're going to print this. You have to decide, okay, which, uh, if we have two different manuscripts, we have to pick one. We have to pick one or the other. So the person that edited and printed the first Greek New Testament was Pseudotus Erasmus. So Erasmus, he was a brilliant humanist scholar. I don't think humanist in a negative way. We sometimes think of secular humanism. Uh, this was the old school version of humanism that uh, a lot of it meant to, they wanted to go back to the sources, uh, check out the original documents. Um, so they wanted to, ad fontes was their, their cry, and they wanted to, let's get back to the, the original writings. And so they started learning Greek, they started learning Hebrew, uh, which a lot of people really you know, hadn't bothered to learn for all these years. He was also a Roman Catholic priest, um, although oftentimes he was very critical of the church as well. He published it, he rushed it to publication in 1516. So think of this, when this, this is about 500 years ago. And this is about also the King James was in 1611. So this is about you know, roughly 100 years before the King James uh, version is published. He had to um, rush his first edition to press because there was somebody else that was going to beat him to it. And so he kind of had to scramble and get it ready. Uh, he also, um, at the time, he only was able to consult with five different handwritten Greek manuscripts for this first edition. You can say, okay, well, there's, you know, 5,800 some manuscripts out there if you were able to collect them all and study them. And we, you actually are able to do that more than he could because you could go on your computer and you could actually find high copy scans of many of these. But back then, it's whatever you had, you know, access to. And he had access to about five that he could compare. It went through a few different editions and he was able to look at a few more, but nothing like people, what people today are able to look at and to compare manuscript to manuscript to try and make some of these decisions. Basically, his work was the beginning of what would eventually be known as what's called the Textus Receptus. We'll explain that in a little bit. There were other Greek texts that were um, produced by another guy, Stephanus. His regular name was Robert Estine and Theodore Beza. Stephanus, 
There's something that you utilize that uh, he is the innovator of. He is the first one in his uh, 1551 New Testament. He's the first one to add the verse divisions. So if you ever wondered how far back do the verse divisions go in your Bible, it actually wasn't until 1551 when this guy Stephanus in his Greek New Testament decided, hey, if we break these up into verses, it'll be easier for people to find them. And the, the legend says, too, that he did this while he was traveling on horseback and that, you know, sometimes the, the horse would hit a pothole and his pen would slip, and that's why sometimes you have verse divisions that don't seem to make the most sense. So whether there's truth in that or not, I don't know. Uh, but he's the guy that introduced that. So just a reminder, our chapter divisions and our verse divisions, these are not divinely inspired. You know, uh, Moses and, and Paul, they did not... And Luke, they did not uh, write those little numbers in the Bible. Those were added later on. So you had, so you had the, the different Greek um, printed versions that were made. And then they used those Greek versions to translate them into different uh, English versions. And so you have people like uh, uh, Tyndale and others that did these translations. So you have the um, King James. This is from the cover page of the the original King James Bible. There were English Bibles before the King James Version, but a new Bible was authorized by King James in 1604 to be created. They asked permission of the king to do this, and he gave uh, permission is why sometimes the King James is called the authorized version. I've heard people say, well, it's, you know, the King James is the only one that we should use because it's the authorized version. Say, well, authorized by who? It doesn't mean it's authorized by God. It's authorized by King James. So it depends how much you care if the King of England has authorized it or not. There's supposed to be certain guidelines. Um, they were not going to have margin notes other than maybe some explanations of some Greek and Hebrew words. But they did not want it to have like, a, it wasn't supposed to be a study Bible or a lot of commentary notes on the side. And that was actually something that, that's not a new thing for us to have like study Bibles. A lot of them had that, uh, but they wanted something that it kept it more kind of neutral rather than, you know, different people's opinions in the side. The translation was supposed to be made from the original languages, but it was supposed to use the bishop's Bible as kind of the basis. So, in a way, kind of more of a revision of this bishop's Bible, which was the common Bible that they had been using in the English churches at the time. Uh, So even then, they're not totally starting from scratch. And a lot of it, really, none of these English Bibles completely start from scratch. It's been said that actually, uh, even in the King James, if you go back, like 90% of it is really what, uh, like, like Tyndale, you know, translated when he started translating uh, the Bible into uh, English when, when he did that. Um, the Bishop's Bible had replaced the Great Bible. There was also the Geneva Bible that was used heavily um, by people privately. The work was done by committees. There were six of them, and they divided out different areas. Uh, they were excellent scholars. They were Anglican, okay, so it wasn't done by fundamentalist Baptists or anything like that, um, but they were uh, good scholars. Uh, committee work, in a way, is good because that way you don't have just one person 
that uh, is translating everything for you know their pet uh, views, and most of our translations are done that way. If you have a translation that's just like somebody's name, it's probably not a good thing because it's just like one person. Uh, but there's also some downsides to it too, because the tra- the committees sometimes didn't check with each other, and sometimes they were inconsistent in how they translated things. Uh, they didn't really have a good editor that went back and just caught all the differences. For one, uh, sometimes the, a word is translated as kill in one place and murder in another, and that's led to some, you know, problems. Uh, where if it had just been translated murder straight through, maybe it would make it easier to understand what is being said. So the translators, they used the printed text of Erasmus, Stephanus, and Beza. Uh, these are the people that created these printed versions of the, the Greek. And said the work started in 1607, completed in 1611. Some people talk about the 1611 King James uh, Bible. The King James was printed by Robert Barker, the royal printer, who maintained the right to print the King James Bible for 100 years. But I think this is good to point out because I've heard some that say, well, new translations, they have copyrights. And the King James doesn't have a copyright. Well, not anymore. But back in the day, there was only one person that was authorized to be the official printer of this. So (laughs) something to take into account. And the King James has been revised several times since 1611. So for those that say, well, when it came off in 1611, this was God's perfect word and could not possibly uh, be, um, the, the translation was perfect. Well, it has been updated uh, many times since then, actually. It was printed three times in 1611. Uh, the earliest is sometimes called the He edition because in Ruth 3.15, it says uh, he went into the city instead of she went into the city. So it misgenders Ruth. And so they had to fix that one. Uh, there's a 1631 edition. That, this is unfortunate. It missed the word not in the seventh commandment. So this, uh, those Bibles that got printed got labeled as the wicked Bible because it actually said thou shall commit adultery. Uh, so that's, <laughs> that's a typo you don't want to have. So even if it's using the printing press, it's still easy to have accidental mistakes. We assume that's accidental. Um, <clears throat> there are other ones too. In an Oxford edition of 1717, it was known as the Vinegar Bible because the chapter heading in Luke 20 uh, talked about the parable of the vinegar instead of the parable of the vineyard. And there's a different version uh, from 1795 that became known as the Murderer's Bible uh, because it said instead of it, it's it it printed let the children first be killed instead of filled so kind of a big change there so all that to say there's still if you're going to argue that it was absolutely perfect you know the 1611 it this isn't true 2 years after publication about 300 changes were made there were other revisions that were made and actually, the revisions that were made in uh, 1762 and 1769 modernized the spelling to make it readable today. And this is really um, essentially what you have now if you have a King James Version. So you probably don't actually have the 1611. It has been you know, updated. It has had some changes to it as well. But the thing is, when they translated all this, 
they used what they had available to them. And they used uh, the stuff that Erasmus and, uh, that had, he had produced, and they didn't have the oldest manuscripts. So later on, when the papyrus was discovered and all these other older ones, or they could be assembled and looked at together, Codex, Sinaiticus, and Vaticanus, they realized, hey, there's some differences here, and we need to take these into account. So just to give some terms for clarification, these are in your notes. A Greek manuscripts, there's over 5,700. This is handwritten ones. Then there's printed texts. We've talked about those. That's where it's uh, used with a printing press. The Byzantine text type. So this is a group of similar handwritten Greek manuscripts, the handwritten ones, produced in Byzantium, where Greek was still spoken. And this is the type that was available for Erasmus and Stephanus and Beza for their printed texts, which were then used by the King James Version translators. Sometimes they talk about the majority text. If there's a different readings, you know, different variations, which has the most? So it's really whatever reading in a different verse is supported by the most number of handwritten manuscripts. It's usually the Byzantine text type because there's way more of those, not always. Uh, So thinking this through, you have the King James Bible, which is also called the authorized version because King James authorized it. And then the Textus Receptus, which means received text. And this actually comes from an advertising slogan that was done in a 1633 printed version of the Greek text. And it was done to match the different choices that were made for the King James Version. I say this because some people say, no, you've got to use the Textus Receptus. And it makes it seem like there's like one perfect uh, version of Scripture that has been transmitted through the years. But what we have to understand is this edition that was published actually didn't match any of the editions before that. Whether one's done in the printing press, it wasn't the same. And it didn't match any of the handwritten ones either. It was something that was kind of done kind of backwards, you know, using whatever the King James people did and saying, well, this is the choices that they had made. So I think knowing some of this background really helps us as we think through this. So here's where this kind of all comes together. Because it's not just a matter of the King James Version uses these and thous, and it uses some you know, old words. And yeah, in one place, it talks about unicorns, and they didn't know how to translate that word. And there is a place where it talks about unicorns um, and God having the strength of a unicorn. Uh, but that's not the main point that we're getting at here. It's, it's that uh, the King James translators, and also the New King James, they're translated from the majority text, Byzantine text type, Textus Receptus, that we just talked about. Whereas the other translations are what's kind of called eclectic, meaning they draw from a wide variety of different sources. So if you have the English Standard Version, it's going to use, not the Textus Receptus, but it might use something like the, um, this is a Greek New Testament. This is produced by the United Bible Society. It's the fourth edition. They're out in the fifth edition now. And it, it gives you their choices, that what they put together, But they look at all of the different versions. They look at the old ones, and they weigh them. A lot of times they'll go with the old ones, not necessarily. Sometimes they'll have reasons to go with other ones. 
But then for the translators, it gives notes and says, okay, it's found in these manuscripts. This other reading is found over here. It tells us how certain they are that their view is right or if they're, it's an educated kind of guess. But it's really kind of transparent. But the thing is, they kind of do their best to try and draw from all the different types. It's not just Alexandrian, but uh, kind of all of them and kind of weighing these together. And that's where the folks that are very King James only will say, well, this is wrong to do. This is an abomination. It's a you know, New Age plot or by Satan uh, because it's trying to pull us away from the word of God and that what we have in the King James is the only thing that's perfect. And it should just be based on the, um, the Byzantine text type. All right, so I want to give you a few examples and then we, we're running out of time. This is kind of a long marathon thing, but... Hopefully you're here because you were hungry to have some of these things discussed for you. The three longest variants in Scripture, if you're like, well, what are some of these different variations in Scripture? What are the differences? Uh, The longest one that you're going to find is in the ending of Mark. So if you read the Gospel of Mark, it ends um, really abruptly if you end it at 16 verse 8. Uh, But in most Trans, well, if you're using King James, it'll go on all the way through verse 20. Whereas if you look it up in, let's say, an English Standard Version, it still includes it, but it gives you a little note saying that the rest of these verses are not found in a lot of the early manuscripts. And so it doesn't, in a case like that, you can't say, well, it's just removing the text, it's just getting rid of it. But it is letting you know that, hey, you know, there's a problem here there's at least a good chance that this isn't what is originally written. That it could be what happened is that um, originally people thought, well, Mark kind of ends kind of abruptly here. It's kind of a cliffhanger. We better add a little bit to kind of fill this out, you know, with more about the resurrection and maybe added some, um, you know, different accounts onto this. Uh, but here it says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20, and then it gives a footnote talking about it. So if you want to say, well, you know, it's deleting text. Here it's not even deleting it. It's just in there, but it's giving you a note. And I would say that means be careful about, like, establishing some major doctrine on something if it might be doubtful. Now, in this, it is not found in some of the earliest manuscripts, Codex Codex Sinaiticus, Vaticanus. uh, Jerome, the scholar in the early church, he was aware that there were passages that didn't have the ending, the longer ending, and even someone they had it, they'd mark it with like an asterisk to know it was questionable. But also, even when you read it, you can say, well, is, maybe there's some things in here that don't even make a lot of sense. I mean, it talks about, and these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. And it goes on from there. And we can say, well, okay, there's stories in Acts where you know, some of this stuff happened to Paul and he got bitten by a snake. But there's others. You can go to like Appalachia where a part of the worship service, they will do snake handling. And they will get out, they will say, well, this says we should do it. And they will literally, you can find YouTube videos, they will bust out the rattlesnakes and start throwing them around the congregation. Wouldn't you love that if we did that? And you're a faithful Christian if you have faith enough to handle this rattlesnake. And some of these, they got rattlesnake bites all over and some people uh, go to glory early because you're really not supposed to be handling rattlesnakes. Uh, So that's one of these. uh, That's the longest kind of variant. 
So it's not like, you know, huge, you know, swaths of scripture. And your Bible is telling you, it's being very transparent, that good chance this isn't the original. Another one is from John seven fifty three through eight eleven, the story of the woman caught in adultery. And a lot of times you say, well, that's a great story. We love that story. But here's the problem. That story, um, in, in, if you read like ESV or NASB, it's also going to have a little note. It's, it's going to keep it in there, but it's going to let you know it's not found in a lot of the early manuscripts. And this is one that I think we can be really actually pretty certain this wasn't originally in John's Gospel. Uh, it's not included in um, a, a diverse group of really ancient manuscripts. Uh, the majority of like church lectionaries, their, their um, works that they use you know, for their preaching schedules, different translations. Uh, and other manuscripts that do have it, they also mark it that there's some kind of a problem. Uh, but also, in some of the manuscripts that do have it, it's found in other places in John. Like, it moves around. Like, they didn't know, like, where exactly to put it. And also, if you read sometime, and you take that part out, and you read from John seven fifty two to eight twelve, the story is actually seamless. It just kind of keeps going. But this story about the woman caught in adultery kind of interrupts this story and what's going on and kind of changes the flow of it. And there's actually even one uh, manuscript that it's found in the Gospel of Luke instead of John. So it seems what could be the case, it might be something that actually happened. I mean, it does seem like something Jesus would say and do. So it might be something that actually happened, and maybe it got passed on as oral tradition, but then eventually, you know, people thought, you know, this needs to be in the, the Gospel somewhere, and started adding it in. Um, but there's a good chance that that is another one that was not originally um, in the Bible. Another one that's pretty can be really controversial, and some of the King James only people will say, if you don't have this one in your Bible, you are, you're denying the Trinity. And this is 1 John 5, in 7 through 8. And it's called the, some of this is called the Como Johannium. If you notice... It says, the Spirit bears witness, the Spirit is truth. But in verse 7, and there are three, King James, there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And then it goes on, and there are three that bear witness on earth. And it talks about the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And it seems to be a very clear verse on the Trinity, that you have the Father, the Word of God, the Word, Jesus is the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and they're one. But in the English Standard and New American Standard and others, it just says, for there are three that testify, and then the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. And that's where King James only folks oftentimes argue that, you know, we're trying to take away the Trinity from this by not having that verse in it. But you have to actually say, well, what was actually written originally? And actually when Erasmus, remember the guy that did the first Greek printed version, when his first edition came out in 1516, he did not include it. He actually didn't have it in the second edition as well. And the reason for that is that not one of the Greek manuscripts that Erasmus examined contained it. It was found in the Latin Vulgate, that had been used for the longest time, the, the Latin translation, but it wasn't in any of the Greek versions that he looked at. 
and he got accused of he's denying the Trinity and you know attacking um, Orthodox doctrine. And he said, well, I'm not doing it. It's just because I can't find any Greek manuscripts that actually had this. And he actually even put forth a challenge. Like, if you can find me one manuscript that has this, I'll include it. And he said, well, it should have more than one. But he basically said, if you can even find one of these. But he said, if a single manuscript had come to my hands in which stood what we read, then I would certainly have used it to fill in what was missing in the other manuscripts I had. Now, he did include it in his third edition because by that time there was an Irish manuscript that he had been given that contained it. And people debate kind of what happened there. It seems kind of suspect. You know, did this get like uh, specially created by somebody that wanted this put back into the Bible? But it's amazing that there wasn't a single manuscript that he looked at that actually had this. James White writes, Beyond this, however, we have a phrase that is not part of the ancient Greek manuscripts of John's first epistle. The few manuscripts that contain it are very recent, and half of these have have the reading in the margin. So even in half the manuscripts that have it, it's like written in the side, like they know it's not supposed to be in there. That's what would happen sometimes, is sometimes somebody would have like something written in the margin, and then the, the next scribe thinks, well, I think it's supposed to be in there, and they would include it in the regular version. And that's sometimes how things slipped in. So those are kind of the three big ones. And a lot of, at least for the first two, if you have a different Bible, it probably still has them in there, but noted. A lot of the versions do take out verse, a big part of verse 7 here, because they're just convinced that's not what John actually wrote in the beginning. And you can still get the doctrine of the Trinity uh, without that verse, as, as nice as it would be if that was original. So what about missing words? I'll just give some examples of this. Colossians 1-2. This is also an example of sometimes how these, these differences can kind of slip in. So King James, To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae, grace be to you and peace, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In the ESV, at the end it says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. And then it ends. And it doesn't have the Lord Jesus Christ. People say, see, it's modern translations. They're taking away Jesus. But Colossians and Ephesians are very similar letters. And if you look even in the English Standard Version of Ephesians 1-2, it has the phrase, from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Which shows that there wasn't a conspiracy to take away the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, They wouldn't have done that. But the other way probably makes sense how maybe it could have got added that if somebody is very familiar, let's say a scribe with how it was written in Ephesians and now they're copying Colossians, that they may say, oh, I know this one. It's God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. And then that gets copied, and the next thing you know, that's you know, part of that manuscript, that it accidentally got added in there. Because maybe they thought, well, we know that's how it goes. Uh, but maybe they were remembering Ephesians instead of Colossians. So that can be just an example of some of these missing words. Now, you might see a chart like this sometime, and there are more examples that you could have where they'd say, wow, look, you have these verses that say Jesus or Christ or Jesus Christ. And the new versions, they just omit that. And when you look at it like that with a chart that looks like this, that looks terrible. You're omitting Jesus. You're omitting Christ. 
in one place, taking out the Lord. So I was like, whoa, there's got to be some plot here that is like against Jesus. But if you look, at, let's look at this chart in a different way. What you have here actually is you have a longer version in the King James oftentimes, and then you have something that's more concise in some of the other versions, or maybe it just says, for example, he instead of Jesus, or it says uh, the Lord Jesus instead of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, or something like that. So that's probably one of these examples, but over time, uh, people had this expansion of piety where they gave it the longer title. Uh, So I think it was not anyone trying to take away from Christ, and there's still plenty of times in Scripture where it refers to Jesus, it refers to him as the Christ, it refers to him as the Lord. But the reason that the other translations have the shorter version is they're just convinced that that's what the original actually said. And that over time, it accidentally maybe got expanded. Uh, but when you look at it like, like this, it seems much less of a conspiracy theory. There are some places where you could have it the other way around. In the King James, it says, And they came to Mysia, and they agreed to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. But in other translations, it says the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So here you could say, well, if there's a conspiracy, I guess here, you know, it's the King James that has taken away Jesus. So there are some times where it's the other way around. Another example of this is in Acts 4.25. King James, who by the mouth of the servant David hath said, in the English Standard, through, through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, by the Holy Spirit. And that's actually got more theology behind it, that he said this by the, the Holy Spirit speaking through him. So there are examples where it goes the other way as well. And it's just a matter of, with the people doing this, what were they more convinced that the original actually said? We talked about this one in the beginning, where it seems like there's some missing you know, parts here, because in, in 1 John 4, 3, in the King James, confess if not that Jesus is come in the flesh, then you're of the Antichrist. Whereas in... The ESV, it doesn't say in the flesh. Say, well, it's promoting heresy. But if you read the verse before that, say in the ESV, it says, by this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Jesus has come in the flesh. That's right there in verse 2. If there was some big conspiracy to promote heresy, they missed where it talks about, you know, the incarnation right before this, one verse ahead of time. Probably what makes more sense is that it got accidentally repeated in some of the versions that the King James translators ended up using. Uh, So it was in both verse 2 and verse 3. There'd be no reason to just take it out otherwise, especially when you have it in verse 2. Missing verses, we'll just give you some examples of this. We had this at the beginning. What about Mark? When it talks about, it leaves out this part about uh, being in hell forever. Well, in the King James, in verse 44, it says, Where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And same thing in verse 46. And yeah, you're not going to find that in the English Standard Version. It just doesn't have those verses. And it's because they came to the conclusion that probably what happened is that it got slipped in over time. But if you keep reading down to verse 48, 
it actually says, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So it's still there being taught. And it seems more likely that over time, it got slipped into different places in some of the manuscripts. But there's, I hope you see there's not a conspiracy here. Because if there is, they still left it in in verse 48. But sometimes the way that it gets presented online makes it seem way worse than it actually is. And last example, John 5, 4. Jesus, he's going by the, the pool in Bethesda. It has five porches. Uh, there lay a great multitude of impotent folk with blind, of blind, halted, and withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. So ever, whoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in was made whole of whatever disease he had. And if you read in the English Standard and others, it just doesn't have that explanation in verse 4. It goes uh, right from 3 to verse 5. I think the original probably was close to what the English Standard had. And then over time, somebody wrote a little note explaining, like, this seems weird. What's this going on? And they said there was a legend that an angel did this. And that note probably got uh, mistaken for the actual scripture and eventually some scribe included it in there because they didn't know that it was just a little note on the side. And that's a, probably a really good explanation for how that happened. There's way more we could talk about if you really want to go into this, and I know this has been a lot. Um, I do recommend the book by James White called The King James Only Controversy. The first few chapters are just a good overview of how all this stuff works with manuscripts and translation. And also, if you want to go into as much detail as you want, it's available in that book. So my conclusion for you, the question was, do non-King James Bibles delete inspired word? Inspired words, so actually the words of God. It is true there's some words that aren't found in these other versions, but are they inspired words? And the conclusion, at least that I've come to, and that's why I'm okay using some of these other versions, and none of them are perfect, and the King James is not terrible. You can still use it. But the conclusion I have is that no, non-King James Version Bibles do not delete inspired words. Rather, what is going on is, to the best of their ability, they're seeking not to include uninspired words that were added to the Bible over time. So there are differences, but it's a matter of were these actually the Word of God to begin with or not. And we do not have any perfect translations, and I think they're always open to, um, to making corrections and weighing the evidence. We do not have perfect translations, but we do have faithful translations of God's perfect word, and that's something we can be very thankful for. All right, thank you for staying with me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that you have preserved your word for us. And we thank you that all of the main teachings are so clearly preserved uh, without any dispute uh, that we are created by you, that we have sinned and fallen away, that Jesus Christ is the God-man, fully God, that he came in the flesh, that he is, became fully man for us so that he could die on the cross for us, taking the punishment for humans like us. 
and that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of what Jesus did, and that we look forward to our final salvation when you come again, Lord God. We thank you for the security that we have based on your word, based on your Holy Spirit, and um, based on what you have done for us. So, Lord, help our faith not to be shaken by um, skeptics and people that misrepresent truth. Help us to look to your word and to recognize that when we read our Bibles, uh, we are reading a, a translation of your perfect word that has come down to us with great faithfulness. And so you speak to us through it. So help us to hear you, help us to respond, and help us to give you glory in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.